of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, February the 6th, 2023. And today we have episode 3242 of the Survival Podcast. Attempt number two. Yes, attempt number two. Not not number two, but it feels like number two today. So I started doing it as a live episode like I usually do now. I was on StreamYard and I was in other screens. So I don't even know how long it was that people couldn't hear me. But I looked over and my router said, guess what? You're not, not my router, my modem said, guess what? You're not online. Shortly thereafter, Comcast called and said, yes, there is an outage today. I can do backup internet uh, by tethering to my phone, but I don't trust that for streaming. So I'm backing off and I'll have to just re-record the parts that I already did today. And this will be an audio version only. So there'll be no live video of this one, but it doesn't really matter. We will reach you one way or another through the audio format. Uh, what do we got today? Well, the 13 stomps are coming back in two episodes this week. That'll be Tuesday and Thursday. I'll tell you about that. Uh, we'll read our Twitter poll results and boostergrams from last week, at least a few of the boostergrams. I'm going to talk about the most simple time management process ever, the Triple D. Doesn't have anything to do with Guy Fieri, uh, the TV cook, or anything like that. I don't know if anybody else calls it Triple D. But it's not my original idea, and I don't even know who originally is the source of it, but it's something I've tried to make myself do, and it will make you more effective in your life if you do it. I'm going to tell you about my view of the real scary shit about the Chinese balloon. Nobody's saying, at least not on the television, none of the talking heads are saying right now, that I think we actually need to take in what just happened and what the Chinese just ascertained about the United States. And it's probably not what you think. Uh, again, I want to talk about the chicken feed claims and tell you why I think they're complete nonsense. Purina, poison the chicken food so nobody's chickens will lay eggs. This is dumb, and it's the power of TikTok and dumb coming together. And I'll tell you how, how you can prove me wrong if you think I'm wrong. It'll be really simple, and I would love somebody to do it. And then if I'm wrong, let me know. Send me the thing I'm going to ask for, and then I will cover it extensively. But I don't think it's doable, because I think if it was... Somebody else would have done it by now. We shall see. Um, I wonder about when people get stuck on an idea and can't be convinced that they're wrong and how detrimental that is to them being able to move forward. This has to do with somebody that's very upset and worried that I'm going to destroy all my plants with black walnut, sawdust, which I don't even know where you would get to from. But they're absolutely wrong. But it's, not, it's like the, the, episode, the segment I did on Friday. It's not about the person. It's about how this detrimental mental loop people get stuck in can really destroy the opportunities that they have because they're so stuck on a thing, they can't move past it. Uh, some thoughts on an attached greenhouse. Uh, there'll be some it depends on that and some suggestions on that. My thoughts on social media outlets like Odyssey for video and Rumble for video and Float. And where are we at with all of these things now? It seemed like at one point we really needed these alternatives to step up. Some of them did, some of them not as much. But are they ever going to take off? And, and how much effort am I willing to put into them? Do you need a license to sell plants and trees? Honestly, that's what it depends. There's a lot of it depends out there. Uh, and I'll tell you what it depends on, in my opinion. And is there a feedstock that's better or worse for making biochar? Like, do different tre- trees make different types of biochar, and does it matter? And what should we do, and what should we take away from that? So that's what we got today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is knifekits.com. 
Find a hobby, a project, or even a side hustle at knifekits.com. They make it easy for anybody, even me, to build a knife. Because you can start with a kit. You can build a fixed blade. You can build a folder. Pick your own handle materials if you need help. They have books and videos. They also have all the stuff you need to make, like Kydex holsters. They even have like really cool engraved clips for Kydex holsters now. All kinds of cool stuff. You can find it all at knifekits.com. And remember, MSB members do get a discount on everything that you can buy at knifekits.com. Next up today, how would you like to grow your own honey badger super seeds? Well, Paul Wheaton uh, partnered with with Alan Booker to do a two-plus-hour seminar on developing epigenetics in your plants. Don't let that scare you, but yes, this is high level. Somebody today commented on my little blog post about this and said, so just save your own seeds. No, that's not what it is. And if you think that's what it is, then you probably really need to get your hands on this information. It's only 10 bucks, and I'll put it to you this way. If you spend 10 bucks on it and you're like, Jack, that wasn't worth 10 bucks. if Paul Wheaton doesn't give you a refund, I'll give you your freaking 10 bucks back. Right? I mean, honest to God, folks, this is some of the best information I've ever seen. I don't tend to tell you that kind of thing about information products. Like, say, this is the best. The best. But it's radically changed the way I look at starting seeds for the rest of my life. There's some things that I will never do ever again that I used to do. And there's some things that I will always do that I never did before when it comes to starting seeds. And it has to do with what I learned about how microorganisms in the soil form symbiotic relationships with seeds at the time of germination. And if they don't form it then, no matter how much opportunity you provide them, they may never develop it. That's pretty earth-shattering to me. And a bunch more. Check it out. Again, you can find links to everything in the show notes today. With that, let's start off into this. I I, want to let you know, again, 13 stops. Did those a year and a half, two two and a half years ago, I guess now, 2020. Yeah, 2020, uh, June of 2020, when I went on vacation for almost three weeks. Never been on vacation that long before, so I did 13 episodes, each one with a stomp, a step to getting what you want in life. It keeps coming back at me. People keep asking me about it. People keep saying to break it out. I have to do uh, a show with Nicole Sauce and John Willis tomorrow morning, our first Tuesday fireside or coffee chat. Then I have like a half hour I got to get ready and I got to be on with John Bush for the Central Bank Digital Currency opt-out challenge. I'm I'm speaking one of on Tuesday this week. Uh so I thought I'll just I'll do the 13 stomps on Tuesday and I I put it together already today and I got up to six of the 13 stomps and I was well over an hour and I like I'll break it in two. So it's going to run Tuesday, then we'll have a guest show on Wednesday, then Thursday will be part 2 of that. And then Friday, expert counsel. So a little bit of a change up this week, but that will get that out there. And I, I really encourage you, if you didn't hear it the first time, to listen to these two episodes. Um, the amount of positive feedback I continue to get on something that's over two years old is unbelievable to me. And it's because it works. And if you are looking to change your lot in life, maybe this will be the thing that you need to kick you a square in the butt and make you do the things that, on some levels, you already know you need to do. So next up, let's talk about... The boostograms that I got last week, just some of them. Top Cone says, thanks for all the info on Hydro. I think the store staff only thinks about CBD growing. Top sent me a 1,000 sats. Thanks, Top. And, and it probably is the case. A lot of the Hydro stores, they're not much use to vegetable growers because everybody wants to grow bud. I mean, let, let's be honest. Uh, Henry, 
G-A-I, or G-A-J, says, Steve Reisner, possibly one of the best guests of the last year, has been doing some really interesting, easy-to-make Korean natural farming-style ferments uh, and sent me 500 sats. Thanks for that, Henry, and you know what? Thanks for mentioning um, Steve. I need to get in touch with him and get him back on the show. He was one of the best guests that I've ever had. Uh, Jay Diddy sent me a 3,000 sats and said, I think you summed it up great at the end. This sounds like a miraculous product, and why aren't we doing more with it? That is in regards to biochar, my discussion with Michael Whitman last week. Thank you. Dubrovko sent me a thousand sets. Did anyone else think of closing the loop and having a dam planting bamboo on the pressure end of the dam and using bamboo to make biochar and wood vinegar and having the biochar added to the soil and retained uh, water as a positive feedback loop? Yes, I think that's a great idea. Uh, a thousand stats from Jordan as well said, great content, Jack. I've looked into biochar before but never got around to doing anything with it. You've rekindled my interest. Good to hear. TNT Mom said a thousand sats and said I needed Nicole's take on consistency over perfection on podcast. I started mine at the end of September and have fallen off a bit of consistency because I am not happy with the quality. TNT Mom, the quality will come from the consistency. If you do the podcast and you make yourself, you say I'm going to be three times a week, one time a week, four days a week, whatever it is, twice a week, whatever it is, you never fail to meet your consistency goal. You, the quality will come with practice and repetition, listening to your own show, critiquing yourself, not getting down on it, going back and doing it again with fresh in your head. I should do better at these things. Uh, reset Remedy, 500 sats boost. Jack, you're such a jerk. You too, Nicole. Thanks for the boost y'all provided. Uh, and in a Bitcoin discussion with Jack, I have 1,000 sats from Bees and Tees. Bees and Trees. Great episode. Thank you, Jerk. Now I'm going to become a three-corner because of you. That's awesome. A thousand sats from Scuttlebutt Farm. Please tell what you think the Azola guy is onto. I, I don't really understand that question. I think the Azola guy is onto a lot of things. I also think I said, what might have got this is last week, I said that I don't think that Azola is really the best choice of things to make a uh, fuel out of. And I don't think it is. I think its highest use is in feed uh, or fertilizer. And I think there's other things like biochar that make a better energy source. Uh, good info and great entertainment. Thanks, Jack, from users 7952, 750 sets. Thank you, sir. And Bray Dennis, 180,000 sats, dude. Thank you. I listened from Australia wanting to give a bit of value back. Heading to your part of the world in August and would love a bit of local knowledge. Hey, send me an email on something like that. I'll see what I can do. I don't know if you mean my neck of the world being north-central Texas, because even Texas isn't necessarily my neck of the world. But if you're going to be in this area, hey, this since you uh, you are a Bitcoiner, uh, if nothing else, maybe come hook up with us at one of the Fort, Point, uh, Fort, Fort Bitcoin meetups. A thousand sats from Fernando says thanks, and Jen Indy, 250 sats, and says boost. So I want to just say thanks to everybody who uh, sent in a value for value sats on Fountain FM, and thank you for supporting the show and the work that we do. And I read them all, even if I don't read them on air. I can't read them all on air, or the show on Monday would be nothing but all the people that were generous enough to send value and comment in Boostergrams. So thank you guys so much. Next up, I've really enjoyed doing these Twitter polls, and I'm going to try to put four to five polls out every week. 
If you follow me on Twitter, you won't miss them. You can vote in them. Some of them have been more popular than others. But I think it's an interesting thing to get a feel for what people that follow me are thinking and how maybe we think a little differently than others and how maybe we think a lot in common with others as well. Here are my polls this week. I had four of them. What do you feel most influences your odds of success when starting a business? Uh, amount of startup money, 3.9%. Past experience, 17.5%. Mindset going in, 47.4%. Picking the right thing, 31.2%. I have to tend to agree with the wisdom of the audience on this one. Mindset is exactly where I would be. But I try to make these polls not always easy. You'll see that when we talk about buying land and what was the most popular poll of the week this week. But in this case, I think picking the right thing go is also important. If you pick a business that really isn't a good idea, and, and I, I know I say you can make a living on anything, but when it comes to the product, the revenue model, etc., you can make a bad choice there. Even a good mindset may not be able to overcome that. The other side of that, though, is if you have the right mindset, you will find the right thing for the area you want to be in. So I think that was a split. And it split right where I would expect it to if people are thinking, and they are. Then this one was just a fun one. Which of the underrated beef cuts here do you rate the highest? What do you think is the best underrated beef cut? Chuck Eye, 26%. Sirloin Cap, 22%. Shin, Osobuco, 11%. And Short Rib, 39%. So Short Rib, full off one. I have to agree, it's an amazing cut. I'm kind of disappointed My pick on this would have been Shin. I can't vote in my own polls, but I would have picked the Osobuco because I just think it is, for the dollar, for what it costs, and the quality of what it makes is amazing. And everybody knows about short ribs, so I'm not sure it's, it's really underrated anymore. But they're all excellent, which is why I put them in the poll. And by the way, sirloin cap is one of your choices if you're a ButcherBox customer uh, for an underrated cut of meat. And I really think it's a great cut of meat from ButcherBox because... It'll get you more meat than many of the other subjects when you think about it by the pound. And it's a fantastic quality meat. Uh, how do you feel about open carry of handguns? Not the legality, but the practice itself. It should be the default. 11.3%. Everybody's entitled to their opinion. I don't agree with that one at all. Better to conceal. 38.6%. It depends. Situational. 24%. Whatever floats your boat, 25.9, call it 26%, do what you want. I really kind of think that I cheated and did you dirty a little bit, because it depends and whatever floats your boat are kind of the same, and if you combine them, they far and away beat everything else. Better to conceal, I agree with in a lot of situations, but that would push it back to situational. I would say it depends. There's places where I don't mind carrying open carry. I like to carry open carry, but most of the time I prefer to be concealed. I also think that anybody should be able to carry however they want as long as they're not harming anybody. It amazes me. We, I see these these pictures of like there's a person at a uh, at a diner having breakfast and they have a gun on their hip and they're like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I saw this." Whatever. Whatever. Then, like, half the time, you could tell, like, you look and you see next to the gun, the guy's like an off-duty cop or something. Just it, People are just, they react to everything. But that's one of the reasons I like to carry concealed. I prefer not to have people paying attention to me. And if there is a bad guy, I prefer him not to know that I'm the armed citizen in response. This was my most popular poll this week. Almost a thousand votes on it. If you're buying a new five-acre property, which of the following features would be most valuable to you if it was already in place? So it's already there. A 1,500-square-foot shop building, 
7.5% said that. A one-acre lake, 12.6% said that. A flowing stream, 42.5% said that. No restrictions or codes, 37.4% said that. I like the breakdown on this, and I like the split. I always try to give two that I think are really going to make people think. Assuming I have money, I can build a shop building, and I can put in a lake. Assuming the restrictions don't say I can't do one of those things, right? And you really don't know. So most restrictions on a five-acre property wouldn't tend to prohibit that, and I could always make a selection where even if there's some restrictions, it didn't have those. It's not that hard to find. But no restrictions, It's almost impossible to take a property that has restrictions and building codes and everything and change that. It's, it's very high on the scale of permanence. Legal uh, codes and things like that are, are one step below the mountain for the scale of permanence. A flowing stream is another thing. A flowing stream, and, and I would have put a, 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 you know, a, a non, so a year-round flowing stream, but that wouldn't fit in the YouTube, or I'm sorry, the, the Twitter limits for characters. Um, But if you have a stream that's constantly flowing year-round, not a seasonal you know, uh, running ditch, basically. You have a real stream. That's an incredible asset, and you can't put one of those in. You could fake it with a pump and like recirculate between two ponds, but a real stream like I'm talking about, you can't do that. So I think the two that split were the ones that are kind of like, you either have that or you don't, and you can't put it in later. The other side of that, though, is you have to also look at what's available, et cetera, and will you have the money to do the thing? A lot of people pointed that out in the comments. This one also had a huge number of comments, and, and I thought it was it was really cool to read some of them. So I happen to have an 800-square-foot and a 1,500-square-foot shop building, or two of them. And that's an example of when I bought this place. I, I, I did have a lake, and I was sketchy on whether I ever could do it, and I tried, and I really can't do a lake here. I just can't deal with the rock. Um, so those were limitations, but I had no codes, but the shot buildings were the most valuable thing here to me. And the reason was I looked at my one big shot building and went, that's $60,000 to build today. It was put in, in like 1981, but today it would be 60 grand to put that building in. Today it would be more. When I bought the place, it would have been 60 grand. And I thought to myself, it doesn't really factor that much into the cost of the property, what I'm going to get a mortgage on. And I can't justify $60,000 to put that building in. And so I think it's always situational and somewhat it depends, and we always have to deal with reality. So anyway, these polls are awesome. I would love for you to participate. I am the Survival Pod C on Twitter, and if you're only there for that, well, you're only there for that. It's, it's, it's fun. It's cool. Come check it out. Next up, I want to talk about the most simple time management uh, process or protocol. I'd say it's a protocol, really, ever. That, that will drastically improve your life, especially if you're self-employed small business. Or especially if you're in an instance where you have a lot of discretion in what you do and what you don't do, what you take on and what you don't take on. From a project standpoint, if you're a contractor, and you don't say yes to every potential contract, etc. If you're a podcaster, this is partly why I think it's so effective. But I call it Triple D. And for those of you that know who Guy Fieri is, uh, he has a show called uh, Triple D. Uh, diners, drive-ins, and dives has nothing to do with that. It's not where I'm coming from with it. And I don't remember when I first heard it, and I know I'm not the original source of it. But the triple D, and I think it's important that you do it in this order. You, you do it in this order. And it is decline, do, defer. Decline, do, defer. One of the things I've learned over the years, is to say no more than I say yes. And the very successful people say no all the time. 
They say no all the time because they said yes to everything. They never have time to do the core missionary things that they need to do to be successful. So the more successful you become, the more people want to offer you another project or ask you to be interviewed or what have you. And I don't like saying no, but I, I, I want to, like, when I look at something that comes in front of me, if it's going to be a no, let's just accept that out of the gate, no. And often no is not no forever. A lot of times when somebody wants to interview me or have me come to an event, like, not, 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 it's, it's no, but not no forever. It's no for now. Not now. Like, I don't have time. Hit me in six months. If they come back, then I'll remember, and maybe I'll be more likely to say yes. That's a filtering mechanism. But if I'm like, that's just not going to work right now, no. Right? So that's decline. And decline is the thing you should be doing the most of. And so it should be the first thing you're, you're saying. Is this, a, is this something I'm going to say no to? Because if you are, just do it. Then do. And do could be like, well, I want to do a thing with you two weeks from now, and you're going to set a date. But the do part is saying yes and locking the time in, and then, of course, it's going to get done because it's on the calendar now, right? Once it's on the calendar, it has to happen. Sorry, son, I have to shoot you on, th on Wednesday. Some of you know where that's from, and it was an airsoft gun. Sorry, buddy, it's on the calendar, right? It was a, a show that was actually really good when it first started, and it got worse over time. Uh, but, yeah, once it's on the calendar, it's going to happen. So that would be a do. Or it's, you know, there's something outside that needs doing, so I'm going to go do it right now. If doing it right now is not possible, and it's not a decline, then it's a defer. I'm going to do it later. And I think it's important to set a time limit on it to it will be done by, or I will make a decision by. So right now I'm saying I don't know. So I'm going to set a time on my calendar that's going to come up and remind me, hey, you need to make a decision on this. And when that reminder comes up, I'm making a decision. And if I can't say yes yet, I'm saying no. Because if there's another party involved, it's only a fair to them. Fair to them. And it's amazing how simplistic that process is. And I thought I would give it to you today because when I do the 13 Stomps Part 1 tomorrow and 13 Stomps Part 2 on Thursday, if you add that to it, it's freaking gold. It's like, the, it's like the 14th point. It's not a stomp. It's just a little golden sauce that goes on the 13 Stomps. You learn to act, right, to decline or to defer and to hold yourself accountable when you're deferring. And my biggest weakness is I defer too often. I have people that want me to do something. I want to say yes. I'm trying to be nice. I know what it's like to be trying to get something done and needing somebody else's help and have that person say no and just feel like, damn, why? All I asked for was, and what you have to realize when you ask for something like that is you've done no harm by asking. It's not wrong of you to ask. And if you ask again and you give the person time, they may say yes in the future. Maybe just the timing's wrong. But if that person were to say yes to everything, they would be no good for anything. They would, they would, they would be, have their time completely monopolized. So a lot of times a no is a no for now, and maybe I don't even say it, but it's, oh, I'm going to see if you show back up. And if you do, then I'll try to make it work. And if you don't, then you didn't really want it that bad in the first place. But you know, decline... Do defer the three Ds. Next up, everybody's been talking about the balloon, the Chinese balloon. Why didn't shoot Biden? Why didn't Brandon shoot it down in Alaska? Why didn't they shoot it down in Montana? Blah blah blah. Okay, I agree. If I if I was president of the United States, and I said to to Department of Defense, okay, shoot the balloon down, and they said, well, sir, you know, it could harm some people if it came down into the debris field, and I would have said, I said pop a damn balloon. I didn't say blow it out of the sky. 
Okay? I thought you were smart enough. By the way, you're fired. Who works for you? Who's your number two? Bring them to me. You're fired. You're too stupid to have this job. You came to me with a no instead of an alternative, so you're fired. Now get number two. Now I'm going to try this again. Did you see him get fired? you want to get fired? No? Okay, then pay attention. I want the fucking balloon the fuck out of the air. I want it on the ground. I want it as close to one piece as you possibly can get there. I figured I wouldn't have to tell you this as a military person, but since your predecessor was too stupid to understand it, maybe you need to. Put a couple holes in it. It's a fucking balloon. The air will come out of it. It will descend to Earth. Pick a location that has it the least likely, because we already know where its trajectory is, to land in an unoccupied area. Keep an eye on it during descent. It's going to take a while to come down. It won't just fall out of the air at a thousand miles an hour. If you cause it to do that, by the way, you're fired. Okay? So don't do that. And if there's something, you know, announced in the area, general vicinity, like, be aware of this. And get people out of the way if you can. And if we lose somebody, I hate it, but this cannot stand. And I would have put it on the ground, and I would have found out every single piece of counterintelligence I could about what it is, what it was doing, how it worked, and why it was there. Because you know the freaking Chinese are lying about it, because that's what they do. And then you would have had something. You would have known what they were up to. But no, we're going to let it fly all the way across the United States, across military installations and nuclear plants and all kinds of shit. It'll be fine, and we'll, we'll shoot it over the ocean so it sinks in the water and we can't get it back. And, and I was listening to, well, it's only 57 feet of water where they shot it down. It'll be a lot easier to recover. Have you ever tried to recover something in 57 feet of water? It's not easy. And do you think that, like, you're going to actually get good data from what it was and what it was doing, even if they recovered? I don't think they wanted to know what it was. I don't think the Brandon administration wanted to know what it was. I think that they felt that if it was bad enough, they might even be compelled to have to take some sort of a military response, and they don't have the stomach for it. So they didn't want to know. This is stupid. But let me tell you what China knows now. Let's say that that balloon is exactly what they said it was. It's a wayward weather balloon. I don't believe that, but let's just pretend that it is for shits and giggles. China knows now exactly how to gain complex surveillance information about us because they know we won't shoot the damn thing down because we're too scared to. They know how to place small nuclear EMP weapons in the sky over our country because we don't have the guts or the determination or the gall to shoot it down. They know how to release biological or chemical agents over our country because we don't have the gall or the inclination to shut it down. They have now a, a new means by which to obtain information about what's going on to induce some sort of interference in our power or communications systems. And don't think this is new. I'll tell you a story about some balloons. Nowhere near as sophisticated as this one. There was a time there was a country that was at war with the United States. That country was the nation of Japan. And Japan knew they were up against it in the war that they were in. And they wanted anything to save their empire. So they, they turned to school children. And they had school children making what were called paper balloons. These were actually quite large balloons. And these balloons, the military would then, actually a civilian uh, reserve, would actually attach bombs to these balloons and let them go up into the atmosphere. And then they just kind of released them when they thought they might drift to the United States. And the plan was, 
if bombs randomly went off in the United States, it would invoke fear in the United States. And for a long time, it was denied that it ever happened. Eventually, it came out that it did happen, but it never worked. And eventually, we had some farmers, specifically in the Midwest, find shit like an unexploded piece of ordnance, and the story for a little while was, well, you know, there must have been some military practicing or something out here. But eventually it came out, that's a freaking Japanese bomb from World War II. It's 60, 70 years old, and it, it will deal with it, but it should be safe. And quite a few of them actually, none of them ever went off that we know of, but quite a few of them made it over here. Balloons as a technology in warfare are not new. And that was World War II technology from a nation on the... And by the time that happened, Japan was on the verge of collapse. That was a desperation move. Now you got China, an incredibly sophisticated technological nation, setting these giant balloons up. And if you looked at what was on the bottom of it, it looked an awful lot like a satellite, because that's basically... It's a suborbital satellite carried by a freaking balloon instead of a rocket. And many of you probably don't even know this, because like me, you don't want to pay attention to the news unless you have to. But it's not the only one. One of them went right across Latin America at the same time. I think that the fact that this was allowed to happen is extremely concerning. I stay out of politics, especially federal politics, almost 100% at this point in my life. I focus on solutions. But in the end, when you have a president who responds to a threat with absolute cowardice, it is incredibly dangerous. This was a cowardly thing to do, and my biggest concern is I'm not sure why. There's multiple reasons it could be. One, if I take the excuse on its face, it's cowardly. There is a point where you say the greater good, you know, that there's a risk of any operation... But don't tell me you can't bring a freaking balloon down over eastern freaking Montana without it raining down on people's heads. Have you been there? I have. Montana has about a million people in the whole state, and like 85% of them live in three cities. Or any of the, like there's tons of open farm country in between here and there that this thing could have been brought down safely and recovered. So if, you, if you're telling the truth, you're a coward. If you're not telling the truth, if it wasn't a fear of collateral damage, then everything is worse however it works out. And my biggest, my gut in this, and like I told you guys, when the COVID vaccine was being developed, I have no proof, but my gut was it was going to affect reproduction. And I think that's been proven right. My gut here is that they knew what it was, or they knew what it might be, and they felt if they had conclusive proof that it was, the provocation level was so high that they didn't want the confrontation. Holy shit. This is the biggest story that will quickly turn into a non-story ever. It's nothing but a meme now. People will talk about it. All the people on the right, it's just another reason to kick Joe Biden. They actually don't get it. And they'll be on to the next current thing by next week. At the latest. At the latest. This was an unprecedentedly stupid thing for even Brandon to have done. And that's saying something, unprecedentedly stupid. We're talking about a person that, that, that put a person in charge of our nuclear waste because he was non-binary that stole luggage that liked to dress up and, and, and have sex with people in dog costumes. And this was unprecedentedly stupid. Unprecedentedly stupid and dangerous.
Moving on to something totally different before I blow my top. So, the shit continues with the chicken feed. Purina is poisoning your chickens. Purina changed the, the formula so your chickens won't lay eggs, etc. You got these people, I've kept chickens my whole life. And you look at the person and they're like 21-year-old Instagram chick. You're like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. And this year, they stopped laying sometime right after Thanksgiving at all. And I didn't get any eggs until now. Well, see, as the year goes longer, the days get shorter, and chickens lay less eggs. And they lay pretty much nothing two times a year. The shortest period of light of the year and the molt. And some of you get your chickens at weird times, and they're not supposed to molt that late, but they do, and it compounds. Some of these people maybe have chickens that are freaking four or five years old, and they just don't have that much ammo left in the chamber. So There's all kinds of reasons this happens. But there's a reason I, I believe, I don't know, but there's a reason I believe, like I'm 99% certain this is bullshit. There's a few people listening to this show, and most of them keep chickens. I didn't hear a word about this until the Instagram models with the freaking, you know, tweaked up eyebrows and shit started doing viral videos about it. And they were like, oh, yeah, my chickens aren't lying either. I kind of feel like, because I get emails like, you know, my ducks went off lay or my chickens went off lay. That's come occasionally. If the mass of this audience started having chickens not lay, I'd have heard something about it. And everything's a conspiracy. Everything. Well, since they don't want us to have eggs, since they're burning down the food production facilities, and since eggs prevent the COVIDs, we now know that because there's an in vitro. Like, if you think an in vitro uh, study proves that something cures a thing, you don't understand science. I'm not saying it might not be beneficial. I'm just saying those are not the same thing. In vitro means in a, in a, in a Petri dish or a test tube. With direct application, that doesn't mean if you consume it or take it or eat it, it will cure a disease. It's not how that works. It really isn't. I'm sorry, it doesn't. But I just believe we would have heard more about it until it became a thing. When it became a thing, everybody knows it's true. No, that's not how this shit works. You would have seen an accumulation of complaints and problems instead of like, once one hot-looking chick with an Instagram account went viral with it, 20 other ones did, and then the rednecks came and said they had the problem too, and everybody's craving attention. Now, if you're like, Jack, shut up, you don't know, they're trying to kill us, this is a FEMA camp thing, and you don't ever accept that, you're not in the reality world yet, son, if you're that person. Here's the solution for you. It's Purina's layer that they claim is the one that's the worst. So take your happy ass to Tractor Supply or to Russell Feeds or Atwoods or wherever you buy your Purina crumble shit from. Go down and get a bag and pay for a laboratory to analyze it and tell you what's in it, what the protein count and all that stuff is. Go do that or shut up about this. Because this was on Tucker Carlson and I'm like... Bitch, you make $50 million a year. And I don't fault you for it. I'm glad you do well for yourself. Good for you. But when a man makes $50 million a year, and he's supposed to be a serious journalist, and he's covering the things nobody else will, and God bless him, many times he does, and you can't come out of pocket for 150 bucks or so to get a, an analysis of the feed done and an independent laboratory result, I don't take you seriously on this subject. And that's why I think it's BS. Right? 
Now, I could be wrong. I remain open to being wrong. And that's why I'm like, if I'm wrong, show me I'm wrong. So let's talk about this next thing. So last week and the week before, I was talking a lot about biochar. People started asking questions. We have another one today, totally different version of it, though. Like, are there things you shouldn't make biochar out of? Because if you make biochar out of them, then they'll be toxic to the plants that you're trying to grow with the biochar. And one of the things that came up was black walnut. Now, there's an important thing for I even go forward on the black walnut thing. People have black, black walnut. Oh, my God. Juglone. It's going to kill everything. Okay, stop. The first thing you have to understand is that it applies to black walnut, pecan, butternut, and hickory. All also are juglonous species. It's not that uncommon. Have you, and have you ever gone through the woods and seen one of them trees and other stuff's growing around it? It doesn't like it kills everything. It's alleopathic, meaning it suppresses the growth of some other species of plants to give the black walnut tree or the pecan tree a competitive advantage in growth. And this is why often if you see somebody with something like a pecan tree in the front yard, you'll see not much grass right up near the tree. And from the canopy in, the grass will get thinner and there's nothing left. Trees actually like it that way, by the way, so it's not a bad thing. But that juglone from those leaves and twigs and, and the nuts and their husks falling do cause a suppression of growth to many other species of plants. Again, we call this alleopathic. It is not poison, though I don't suggest you go drink a gallon of it or anything, but it's not poison in the way that we think of the term. It, it, it retards the growth of some plants, and other plants don't care. You know, black cherry doesn't care that there's a, that there's a, uh, a black walnut tree next to it. They grow right next. Autumn olive doesn't care. There's a whole group of plants that grow right around and end with and gild with black walnut or hickory or butternut or English walnut that don't care. It also has to do with what's the soil like, uh, how much humus is in it. There's a lot of other things that mitigate this. But this gentleman, oh, you can't use it. Okay, well, we're talking about biochar. So if you take the wood from black walnut, which you'd have to have, like, it's very valuable wood. It would have to be some real, a lot of slash or something to do this. But if you made biochar out of it, the juglone is volatile, and it will burn off, and it wouldn't be there in the char. And he went on this tirade about if you put more than two inches of black walnut sawdust around your garden, it's going to kill everything. Well, first of all, I don't know who's talking about this. But I was trying to, like, be helpful, and I said, well, let's look at reality. The juglone content in, in, in black walnut isn't that high in the wood. It really isn't. It is in its highest concentration in the husk of the nut. That's the case of the nut, which is very nasty. kind of gets on your fingers, stains them. I used to use them to, to, to brown my leg hole traps, my coil spring traps. You put them in a big 50-gallon drum, throw a bunch of them in there, make sure the traps are good and clean. You put them in there with the concentrated water, and they basically, it's like a bluing, but they call it browning. It looks like something you do to a musket. So it has that brown instead of steel blue uh, color. It helps them prevent them from rusting. Uh, so I get that, and that's the highest. And the second would be the nut husk, so the, the shell and the nut itself, and then would be the leaves and the green twigs, and then the bark, and then the wood. The tree doesn't gain a lot by concentrating juglone in its in its its interior wood because it doesn't drop its wood on the ground and when it does it's dead so it doesn't matter. So so plants and animals do things intrinsically through a biological process that are to their benefit. So the things that most fall off the tree would be the ones with the highest concentration and this is true. 
But here's the bigger thing. And this person just cannot accept it. I'm still getting emails from this person that are just like freaking out like the world is going to end if I don't understand what he's trying to tell me. The half-life of Juglone is about 60 days. Now, you can look that up for yourself. What does that mean? It means that it breaks down to a point where it doesn't really have much of a detrimental effect after about 60 days. This is something else I told this person early on. It's not persistent. It's not persistent. You can literally, I don't advise you to go out of your way to do something like this. You could literally make compost out of black walnut. Leave it sit around for a few months. And you're not going to have any juglone toxicity because the damn stuff breaks down. This is not a persistent herbicide. This isn't 2,4-D or whatever. This is a natural substance that a tree excretes to give itself a competitive advantage in growing in a forest where open space is at a premium. We had three black walnut trees adjacent to our giant garden in Pennsylvania. We had really good soil, lots of clovers and grasses, and we didn't like put the leaves on the bed on purpose. And there was zero effect on our garden. They also do put out some of this juglone through their roots. Again, because as the roots spread, it's... A, it's a th but the big thing is you can't get 100% sure you're right about something and unwilling to be corrected about it. Especially with something like this where the data that's necessary to correct this misconsideration is so easily findable. Just go to Google or DuckDuckGo or Brave Search or whatever you use and put in half-life of juglone. And you'll find what I'm telling you is true. It'll break down to constituents at about 60 days after it's dropped off and out of the tree. And at that point, it has very little effect anymore. So if you had a grove of black walnuts, a grove of them, and you clear-cut it, as long as you didn't have coppicing where they're coming back to life, and then you went in and, 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 and put in a new food forest with no walnut. Or put in a vegetable garden. If you waited 60 days, it doesn't do jack crap. Again, why am I beating on this? Because how many things do we come into our lives taking on to be true? And then we make decisions going forward with the belief that those things are true. And we remain unopened to being corrected on them. And therefore, we live in a world that's not real. We also live in a world with artificial restrictions. We are afraid of things that you shouldn't be afraid of. And tell me, it's, tell me this is any different than the person that still believes wearing a surgical mask that has a box that says it won't protect you from coronavirus, will protect you from coronavirus. But Jack, it's not to protect me from coronavirus, it's to protect other people from me. Okay, if you think that works, I don't know what to tell you. But even if it did, that's not why these people are walking around wearing a mask today. When you go out right now, you go to a grocery store... And there's 150 people in that store, and two of them are wearing masks. They're not doing it to protect the 148. They're doing it because in their head they believe that it will protect them, because the TV said it would protect them, at least in their little world. And they can't let go of it. How many people know someone who's been severely injured by a vaccine, but still say the vaccines are safe and effective? A lot. How many other things in life are there like this? How many things are there that a person will not look at the alternative and judge the alternative. They become convinced and wrapped up. And a lot of the times, it, it makes it's because it's somewhat comforting to them. Or because my granddaddy said so. And if I accept that I'm wrong, then granddaddy's wrong. And God forbid granddaddy be wrong. 
You know what, folks? I have so much appreciation for my grandfathers, both of them, the Spirico side and the Moyer side. Huge appreciation for them. They were both World War II veterans. They were both amazing men in their own way. They were both diehard providers to their family. They were both willing to endure and suffer hardship for their families. They were both willing to make absolute tough decisions when necessary, and they were both often wrong, just like I have been often wrong. We cannot stay married to an idea just because everybody knows it, or we have no progress in the world. And, if we, and, and worse, we have no progress in our own lives, which is where it really matters. So I wanted to cover that one because of that, and hopefully the person that's doing this heard that and doesn't take it personal because there's nothing to do it personal. Uh, next up, let's talk about an attached greenhouse. This was an interesting uh, way to look at things for me uh, in this one right here. Give me just a second. got to get this pulled up. So this is from Kemi, and Kemi says, I have a passive solar off-grid house in Arkansas. There's an existing 8-foot by 16-foot greenhouse on the south-facing side. However, due to my poor design, it's not functional. Too hot in the summer, too cold in winter. I'd like to bump it out and create an all-season room that's 16 by 24, or possibly 24 by 24. I want this room to serve as an area to read and relax, accommodate larger potted plants and trees that won't overwinter in Zone 7, provide a space to grow veggies, perhaps in a raised bed with a wicking system. I plan to pour concrete for the floor and a metal roof. For my walls, I'm thinking about cinder block, about three foot off the ground, and large double-pane windows to the roof. For ventilation, I plan to use ceiling fans, open windows with solar-powered attic fan. I would like to avoid AC if it's as it's a large draw for an off-grid system. The back wall of the greenhouse is timber frame siding, so not super absorbent. I would like any advice you have on how to heat the space as well as thoughts on how to set up a bed for annual plantings. I do have a sink in the existing greenhouse, however, could easily catch rainwater off the new roof. However, I would need a creative place to store water that does not involve a tank in front of the house, perhaps a bladder of some sort underneath the raised bed. Grateful for all you do. Been listening since 2009. Okay. I'm going to tell you straight out of the gate. I think you need to get someone in your area who's an experienced greenhouse person with construction and design involved in this. We start talking about a 24 by 24 square foot or 24 by 24 uh, foot area. We're talking about a significant space. I mean, we're talking over, what is it, 576 square feet is what that would be, if my math in my head's right. Almost 600 square feet. My first apartment was 540 square feet. My first apartment was 540 square feet. This is significant structure. And that means significant monetary investment. Yeah? Also, there's some things here that I'm not sure about in this. The metal roof. This is going to block the majority of your solar energy that you need in your winter which is your primary purpose for a greenhouse. Yeah? So I'm not so sure about that. I'm not saying no, but I, my gut is that you probably need to have a greenhouse-style roof here. And what you're looking for is something like um, an automated roller 
that would roll in and out with a flip of a switch or with a timer, things like shade cloth, so that you would have it completely covered with a, a 40% maybe shade in your summers, maybe a little bit more, depending on how far north you are in Arkansas. And in your winters, you would want a second roll that would come down and be a full-on insulator, like a heavy tarp-type roller that would come down. If you look at a lot of commercial greenhouses, you can see the type of technology that I'm talking about. Because in the winter, no matter how much you warm up a greenhouse, if you just have plain-jane greenhouse plastic, uh, panels, etc., the heat loss is almost immediate as soon as the sun goes away. So that would be one thing I would look at. Two, these big windows, great idea and all. Most of the windows that you would source that are pre-made windows are designed to block UV light because UV light is not really great coming into your house, at least in our modern mindset. So a lot of the, the, the wavelengths that really are beneficial to plants are blocked by a lot of modern windows. So you want to make sure whatever glass you're using that it, it's not doing that to you. The other thing I would look at is you're kind of in the right place with the metal roof, and maybe this works, right? Maybe a half metal roof. So as your sun angle is lower, you get more light in, and it's acting more like an eve. I'm not sure on this, but you want to minimize excessive solar radiation in your summers because it's very warm in Arkansas, almost as warm as here. So that's fine, but I'm thinking... You might want to look at having only the sun coming into your front and your roof, yeah, and your sidewalls being solid insulated walls. And you mentioned coming up, and I think that's another thing as well, coming up in the front. So you're not going glass or greenhouse plastic or whatever panel, whatever you're going to do, all the way to the ground, because that generally actually costs more than a solid wall. And it has less insulative value. So you pay more to get less if you're letting light in. So figuring out, like, when the sun's at its lowest, what is the point at which light will never come in to any valuable level? And if it's two feet, then two feet. If it's three feet, then three feet. If it's a foot and a half, a foot and a half. That front wall having that insulative value and not putting your, your glass all the way to the ground, I think that's a good idea. You say you're going to pour concrete. I would seriously look at the potential to somehow heat water and pump concrete through pump water through that concrete and heat the ground. And look at either putting pipes in the concrete or pipes below the concrete. And while that will be a significant added expense, it will be way less expensive to do it now than not do it and wish you did it later. So I would really look at that. But I, I think this is something you need someone with some architectural talent to be involved with because of the cost of the investment. Those are just some things I'm thinking about. Now, water storage. It would be awesome. It would be awesome if you could come up with a way to store a lot of water in a way where the water itself would become a heat sink and, and create some kind of like a thermal wall. So you could do something with like a pond liner where the, there's a lot of water, but it's relatively narrow and deep. That might be a possible. I'm not sure exactly how to do that. Um, in a structure of the size you're talking about, you could, though, easily fit a significant water tank, like a 1,500-gallon poly tank in there, and you could do it in a way that it wouldn't detract from the appearance of things. And that would be incredibly valuable, to have that much water in reserve. And again, if you can heat that water in some way. So 
There's a lot of different ways we can look at heating water. So, like, those are all things that I would, I would say to look at and have conversations about. But I am not an expert on greenhouses. I know a lot of shit, but I don't know that much about building an attached greenhouse to a house. And if I was going to put this kind of money, because even if you do this all yourself, this is a significant amount, just a material cost. I would want to get as many opinions from people that are experts in greenhouse growing and greenhouse technology as possible here. And I would never take one person's advice and be done with it. Because this is not conventional. This isn't a half-acre greenhouse that you can buy from a company with fans. In it. Like This is something that's attaching to a house, and it's a long-term thing attached to your house that's going to affect resale value to the upside or the downside and marketability to the upside or the downside. So this is a place to get some professional consultation and probably from multiple sources before you make a final decision about what you want to do. Anybody who's taken on a project, anything like this, I'd love to hear what you did, see videos, pictures, etc., because I find this to be fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And it's one of those things, the reason I'm not going to do it here is it just... It doesn't plug into my property. It doesn't retrofit well, or I would deeply consider doing it myself. Next up, just real quick, I had somebody email me recently uh, about Odyssey uh, and say, hey, we, we, you know, you basically have like one place you stream to all the time instead of being a new stream every time you stream to Odyssey, and we can't like it once we've already liked it, and there's not many people there. The chat will have three or four people in it during a live stream. You know, Do you even consider it worth putting effort into anymore? And uh, it basically that email sums up how I feel like, you know, when you do something like I do and you put content out to something like Odyssey and in a live stream three or four people even care, then I'm only going to put so much effort into it. That said, having a destination set up in StreamYard and clicking include Odyssey in my stream, I'll do that. And I feel the same way about, let's say, Rumble. Uh, Rumble... You know, you put up a video, and two days later it has 50 views. It doesn't hurt anything, but I'm not going to put any effort into a platform that's not given back to me. And I think they both have their limitations for totally different reasons. I think with Odyssey, and I get why they did it, and I was a fan of it when it was being done, but there was always a little thing in me about all these alt currencies that, you know, they had their own token, their library token or whatever, you know. If they had built that platform on Bitcoin. It would have been harder, they would have had less startup funding, etc., but they wouldn't have been a target like they ended up being to the FTC. And, and if you haven't heard, what happened is Odyssey will continue as a thing, but the company itself has been killed by the FTC saying that they were selling an unlicensed security. Which I do, well I how would I how do I say this? I disagree that the law, with the law that says you, that, that it is an unlicensed security, but I don't disagree that the law says it's an unlicensed security. And I think the vast majority of altcoins, shitcoins, call them what you want to, almost everything but Bitcoin is an unlicensed security. And that's based on something called the Howey test. And this basically says, can I do a thing that allows me to enrich myself on the actions that others take because I put this thing in place that they're able to buy, right? So can I enrich myself off of the efforts of others and the investment of others? And if I can, 
then it, 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 it passes the Howey test and it makes it a security. So as a company, if I issue common stock and I sell it like on the Dow Jones or I sell it on the S&P or whatever, you know, any stock market, public offering, then when other people buy that stock, I actually can enrich myself, right? Now, when people are trading stocks that they already own, I don't get anything out of it. But if I issue a million shares of stock and people buy them at 10 bucks a share, you can see how I, I did pretty well. And there's a, there's, a, there's a process to do that that's very involved and very complicated, and it's designed to protect the investor who doesn't know what they're buying or why they're buying it. And if we lived in a world where that wasn't the case, then I think in general people would wise up pretty fast. But people are used to being protected by this nanny state. So then comes in the world of cryptocurrency. And you can pretty much do this, and it's worse. Because you can have no product. It's basically an idea. You put a white paper together, throw up a website, roll out a token, and then say, hey, we have a token. And you get it on a couple exchanges, and then you just sell into those exchanges. It's like a company issuing stock that's picked up. And you become incredibly wealthy doing that. Now, I don't think Odyssey did it as a nefarious thing. I think they're one of the few people that actually did it right, and son of a bitch if they weren't the ones that were targeted and attacked. And so, I don't know. I just don't know that there's a lot of excitement for any of these things. Float is another... Man, I loved what Float was doing and what Float was all about. And I love Kingsley uh, and Aaron, the married couple that you know are the founders of Float. I love them and what they're all about, what they're doing. But when they came out with a new version of it about a year ago, it just didn't do anything they said it was going to do, and it was worse than the old version that people stuck with for two years waiting for the new version that was supposed to be better, and the new version was worse. And now they're changing it again, and I think that there is, in any company, there is a point where momentum either kicks in and you become an incredible success or you lose momentum, and it's almost easier to completely start from nothing than to revolve something that to revive something that lost this momentum. I hope I'm wrong about Float and Odyssey, but I kind of feel like that's what happened now. That they, they, they got momentum, and they lost it for two entirely different reasons, and I don't know if they can get it back. I will continue to put my content there. I will continue to support them, and I will continue to hope that they rise. But I don't have a tremendous amount of confidence about that right now. And I hate saying that because I hate saying something negative about something that is being produced and provided by people that I genuinely admire and like. And that's how I feel um, about the folks behind Odyssey and the folks behind Float. I don't really care about the people behind Rumble. I don't really care. What I can say about Rumble is it's a 100% free speech platform. I think their monetization program stupid. It's basically stealing your money that you could have made by putting your content on YouTube by putting your content on YouTube for you. It doesn't do anything for me, but it doesn't hurt me to stream there. So I do it. So three different places, three different things, three different situations. I don't know what it's going to take to break the back of big tech. And in some ways, what Elon Musk has done with Twitter has actually made it harder to be an alternative because people feel like they actually have a shake now. It may not be perfect, but I actually can say what I want to say without constant impending threat of having my account shut down. And I've watched people be stupid and go out and say heinous, horrible things and tag Elon constantly when they're doing it and tag Twitter support constantly when they're doing it just to get themselves banned and say, see, see, it's not free. You people are stupid. 
Um, I don't really have anything else to say about that other than people that do that kind of thing are stupid. I mean, probably the most successful alternative platform gets 100% free speech is Gab. And there's good things and terrible things about Gab. But I don't know what it takes to break this stranglehold. Because once you have that first mover advantage, I think what it will take is it can't look like something we already have. So that's the problem with all the alternatives. What does Odyssey look like? It looks like YouTube. Functions like YouTube, works like YouTube. It looks like YouTube. It's basically what YouTube is. You have videos, you follow people. It's, it's YouTube. What, what was uh, what was the thing? Um, a parlor. It's Twitter. Come on, it's Twitter. You know? What's Float? It's Twitter. What's Gab? It's Facebook. Like, until you... come, Like, these... There's two forms of content delivery. Right? Three forms of content delivery. Facebook form... Groups, communities, pages, MeWe is Facebook, right? Alternative. Still use it, but it is what it is. And so then you have Twitter. You have short-form blogging, basically. And then you have video in the form of YouTube for long-form video. And, of course, they want to have short-form because Instagram has Reels and TikTok has whatever the hell TikTok is. But there's there's a reality here. People will choose the network that has the greatest network effect and the network effect is directly correlated to the number of people using the network, you know, upvoting, downvoting, sharing, producing content, generating content, etc. So the reason people will choose to stick with Facebook is because they get a better network effect. Everybody they know is there. Now, I've walked away from it. I just couldn't stomach it anymore. And every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, I'm not missing anything. But if you really want to learn about a subject, like there's a group for everything and there's plenty of people that will help you there, and that network effect is what has it going on. So if Float's going to rise again, they got to do it in some way that captures people's imagination like they were doing for a while and enables community to be built at a higher and more functional level. Because all I see with all the alternatives are just a white-label version of the thing they're competing with. How do you take it to another level without making it like, because like uh, we, we have, what, what is it called now uh, being rolled out? Nuster, Noster, whatever it is that's, uh, you know, it, it's not on Bitcoin and it's not blockchain, but it's, 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 in, it's so in line with that. It's uncensorable sharing. It's a protocol to enable sharing of content. And honestly, it's complicated and people like platforms so if you can leverage a protocol into a platform in a way that makes it where a person just signs up and knows what to do it's intuitive think about your smartphone it doesn't come with it does come with an instruction manual first thing you do is throw it away you you can hand a a 10 year old who's never seen a smartphone a smartphone show them two or three things on it and 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 you better be careful they'll be ordering doordash and downloading a hundred dollar app if you're not careful and it won't take long if, oh, this does that. Okay, it's very intuitive. And these these new ideas, they always start out with like the propeller heads, the geeks, the nerds, right? Hacking them and making them work. But until you make them easily consumable and usable by the masses, they can't compete. And so you need to have something that comes out of that world and revolutionizes everything again. And stands for free speech right from the beginning. What I mean is it can't be like, well, we're like Facebook for free speech. We're like Twitter for free speech. 
eh, you know, unless you're the person who's constantly having your speech strambled on, you don't really care. I know that you should, but the, the average person, look at the numbers. They don't care. We're going to have to change the way we're doing things as content creators, platform builders, protocol you know, advocates, what have you, to do that. I love how many of you listen to me on Fountain.fm right now. But you know what? It's about a thousand people listen to me on Fountain and support me on Fountain. The vast majority of people still listen to me on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. It's just, just the way that it is. And I would love to change that, but I also realize people have a momentum that they're in. It takes a lot to shift that momentum. So that's what I think about like all of these platforms right now. I want them to do well, but they're going to have to do it faster, better, and cooler. That's the big thing. Like, You can't be trying to build social media today without having legitimate communities like subgroups and things like that, and hashtags don't cut it. So you got to go toward the Facebook style, but there has to be more to it. It can't just be it's like this, except with less people, less information, less connections, none of your family members, but it's free speech. There has to be something more. And if I knew what it was, maybe I'd be out building it because I'm not sure. So I also got an email from somebody, and I don't know if I actually have the email here. Nope, uh, I must have deleted it. But it was basically pretty simple, like, hey... I have a little farm and all, and I want to start selling unrooted cuttings and maybe some plants and trees. Do I need a nursery license to do this? Okay, by the letter of the law, yes. If you're going to be selling live plants, uh, cuttings, all that type of stuff, then you're supposed to get a nursery license. The good news is if you really want to do it, it's not very expensive. You do have to kind of set things up. There's a process to it. You can look it up for your state, but... Generally speaking, a state inspector will come by probably not long after you set it up and say, like, oh, you can't do this, or that's okay, or this is good, or this is bad, or there looks like there's a risk of an infection, and, like, and, and tell you what to do. And they're not, they're not like, disagreeable people. And when they come across, like, a home-scale uh, nursery, they tend to just go, yeah, this is probably not worth worrying too much about. Right? And it usually means they got to drive out of their way to spend some time and not work real hard, and they're all on salary. So my experience in talking to people who have done that route has been, it ain't that big of a deal if you want to do it. And they may actually tell you something that you're not happy about, but when you look at it, they're actually helpful. Like this would do a risk of contamination of something or what have you. So technically, yeah. The other side of it, unless you're going to significantly market yourself as a nursery, You, you, the odds that anybody's going to bother you are pretty low. And I would say in any instance where you go, that like this is what the law says, what is the consequence of not following the law? Because the consequence of not following that law in California and Texas are pro I don't know, because I'm not in either one of those businesses, but they're probably decidedly different. Decidedly different. So I think if you're marketing yourself as like J&D uh, Nursery, and you're using social media and websites and all, and kind of marketing yourself as that, it probably makes sense to get a nursery license. Yeah? Because now you're kind of out there. If what you mean by that is I have friends, existing customers, etc., and when you say something like unrooted cuttings, I would say, you know, you're doing something like Nick Ferguson, fodder trees, and you're going to cut up somebody a great big bundle of hybrid poplar that they can just stick in the ground, and if they stick them at the right time of year, they'll start growing and make new trees. 
I'm not getting a nursery license to do that, honestly. You know, who who are you dealing with and how are you marketing to the people that you're dealing with? To me, has a lot to do with how agorist do I get with this. If I want to put down on my balance sheet and my income statement, you know, plant sales, and I want to use it not only as a source of revenue there, but also offsetting expenses, if I might be going to a bank at some point and looking to expand, you know, and making it part of my Schedule F as a farm-based, agricultural-based business, and I, I'm wanting to put in a big greenhouse or something, and I'm looking for funding, and I want a troop, then I definitely want to, to take that approach. My experience has been to do about six, 60 to 200 bucks to set up as a licensed nursery in most places. Again, I bet you California is really expensive and a lot more of a pain in the ass. I could be wrong, but I bet it is. I bet doing it in Texas is really easy. But again, what are you doing? How much are you selling? Uh, how are you marketing yourself? I think that would be how I would look at it in making that decision. And, you know, what's the consequence? What's the consequence? If the consequence is they're going to tell you, hey, you have to stop doing that and get a license, okay. If the consequence is going to be a $5,000 fine and you're going to make, you know, 1000 bucks a year doing it, then you probably would be willing to pay 200 bucks for a license as an insurance. Right? You have to make always it depends. But by the letter of the law, if you're selling live plants with the intent of making a profit, from my understanding, in almost every state, you are supposed to have a license as a nursery uh, selling live plants in that state. So this one comes from Lauren, and Lauren says, Do you think there would be a better or worse type of tree for biochar? I have access to quite a bit of cottonwood that sucks for firewood. Lauren, cottonwood would probably make an excellent biochar. And one of the reasons it would make an excellent biochar is it's kind of not a hardwood and not a softwood. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. If it was well dried, it would it would char very beautifully. And since it's a softer hardwood, I guess is the way to look at it, it is going to shatter really easily when you're trying to grind it up. But here's the bigger way to think about this. There's probably no bad Wood And one of the things, I've, I've read almost every book I can get on the subject now, and there's a tremendous number of authors, and I'm so glad that I found Michael Whitman, um, that are under the impression that there's this incredible risk of changing the pH of your soil because, you know, biochar has a higher pH. And some trees have a it, Biochar does not move the pH of soil profiles much at all. Once it's been inoculated, it's been made inhabitable, it's been infiltrated with bioorganisms and all, it's kind of inert in the soil. It's barely a buffer. And I've, I've read enough, again, instead of just like latching on to one or the other, like do the research, as per my other statement, uh, earlier segment, and to tell you that that's the case. That's the case. We don't have to worry about swinging pace. So that's off the table. Now, there's different biochar types as well, more in the macro, less in, okay, this one's cottonwood, this is black locust, this one is a willow, what have you, would be in, like, is it a, a tree, a woody shrub or tree, or is it something like agricultural waste, like corn cobs or corn stalks or switchgrass? When you get into those forms, they are less, they're good, but they're less optimal because they don't have quite the structure in fact, they don't have the structure. So if you look at them under a microscope, you don't see all these little canals, right? All these little tubes, all these little holes, all that extra surface area. They're basically an inert carbon in the soil, which is good, but it's not as good as wood. With wood, 
it's it's less that this one might have a, a, a different pH or whatever. It's more what is the structure. So different woods have different structures, and if you might imagine, different structures might be a little bit differently appealing. You might choose a different apartment than your brother, right? You'll use what you got if that's all you got. But to me, when I look at how this was used in history, specifically in the Amazon region, I don't think that they were like, okay, these are the charcoal trees, right? Whatever slash, whatever material they had that was too small to make it worth using as cooking wood or firewood uh, and or building material, well, we'll make charcoal out of that and we'll use it to help dispose of waste and improve the soil. So what did that naturally do? Well, it naturally meant that they had multiple sources. They weren't using one tree. And I think, to me, and this is just, in, again, this is one of those things I don't know. My gut is... A varied source of feedstock would probably give you the best results because you would get this mosh pause, this integration, where if you're using only a single source, you'd get less diversity, and diversity would be valuable here. But I would not use the material. When I look at commercial operations like New England Biochar, they get most of their material from sawmills and cabinet and furniture factories. So the sawmills are taking all of the, when you cut a log into timber, you have to take quite a bit off that ends up being, I don't remember what they call it now, but it basically isn't usable as timber. It's, you know, it's rounded on one end, it's not squared off, it's a really thin cut, and you basically square up the log and then you can cut, you know, your 2x4s, your 2x6s, your 4x4s, 6x6 beam, whatever, out of the remainder of the tree, but you've got to square it up first. And so that outer, with the bark and all, that gets that, that ends up being waste. And most of them either pay to have it taken away, they put it through a wood chipper that is extremely energy intensive and labor intensive, or they just burn it. And it just goes up in the sky with all its impurities and everything else. But if you have somebody that will take it and you can accommodate them, well, that's great. The same thing with, like, trim for cabinets and stuff. There's all kinds of this waste material. So, like, they're using 90% hardwood, probably three or four species. And their biochar is excellent. So you can't say that you need to have diversity, but I think the average backyard person, diversity is their strength. You know, I prune jujube trees. I prune willow. I prune black locust. I prune some other tree that I don't even know what it is. I, and I don't worry about any of it, and especially anything that will coppice. Like, I'm going to be making a gazillion mulberry, uh, dwarf mulberry bush trees, you can call them, I guess that, uh, and planting them all through my food forest uh, this spring. And one of the things I love about them, I can, I can cut those down to the ground, take all that material, make biochar, use the, the leaves for, for uh, fodder, take berries for a berry yield, and a, a tree just grows back. And it's a constant cycling. So I think we should just not really concern ourselves that much with the source of the feedstock, but it probably is the best practice if you have the option to use a varied feedstock because that diversity, you might find that certain woods make biochar that's very uh, attractive to certain soil organisms. And there's a lot more to this. I'll be doing more on biochar in the future. It's fascinating. What I'm learning about the electron process alone is Amazing. I'll share a little piece of it with you, and we'll wrap up for today. So you have to put yourself at the scale of a soil microorganism and realize it's not the most mobile critter. 
And so if you needed something and it was across the street from your house, well, you would just go get it and then you would have it. But what if you could, you moved extremely slow and because of how slow you move and how small you are and how far you have to go by the time you got across the street and got the thing you needed, that you would have spent more energy on it than you'll get out of it and it fills the energy on it. Or it would take you so long to get there and since you don't live very long, like a lot of these soil bacterium and, and stuff like that, you'd die before you got there. Well, you just never would get it. Well, with the electron process that's, that's, that's built into these high-carbon soils, there's almost a tr – it's like – it's not the same. This is an analogy, but think of it like Star Trek, where you can beam it from one place to the other. So maybe we're talking a millimeter of distance. But to that microorganism, it might as well be 10 miles. But with the electron exchange process – They can beam that. It's not beaming, right? But it can move it and acquire what it's looking for almost instantaneously rather than never or without extreme effort. And over time, that builds up in the soil and that process builds up. And that's different than cation exchange or anion exchange. It's, it's similar, but it's a different piece of the puzzle. And I, I don't even think that we have begun to understand really the total impact that this will have if we embrace it. And I'm very excited about it. I'm probably more excited about what I'm doing with my own little kiln, making biochar, building my own potting soils, building up my garden beds using it, than anything I've done since I started TSP. It is my current thing. And that's another subject we're going to dig into soon. Having your current thing and not having it be negative, right? The current thing, I'm outraged about Ukraine. I'm outraged about COVID masks or whatever, right? Those are the distracting current things. But if you want a path to becoming a polymath, then having current things that you fully embrace and learn all you can about, and then when you've really kind of like taken that to the limit of what you need to do with it, you find another current thing and do it again. That's kind of a cool way to approach things. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like this show and the work that I do, you can always support us becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. Just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more, and you'll get so many discounts that your membership will more than pay for itself. If you have an MSB membership and you use the discounts, you make a profit every year, and you support the show. So consider doing that. Also consider supporting us on something like fountain.fm. Uh, by contributing on the Value for Value Network. You listen to a podcast, you think it's great. Hey, you you chip in what you think it's worth. If you think it's worth $0.10 cents or a dollar, hey, that's fine. That's it's great. I appreciate every sat I can get. Uh, so thanks for that. Also, you can do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Go there and you'll help us out no matter what it is that you buy. And uh, But today's item of the day is Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. Among other things, this is made with comfrey. Uh, I have used it, scrapes, bruises, abrasions, sprains, strains, you name it. I have had hundreds of these sold to my audience because I, I can't see who buys what, but I can see how much is bought every day, every week, every year of different items. And I can tell you it's hundreds of tubs of this stuff has sold over the years. I have never once had a complaint about it. Uh, whether it be a complaint about the company itself or service or the product itself. And I've had dozens, if not a couple hundred, probably over the years, stories of, hey, I used it for this and it worked great. So if you're looking for something to help with sprains, scrapes, etc., 
and you don't want to make your own coffee salve, this stuff is pretty freaking amazing. Even though we do some of our own salves and all, I always keep some of this around because it's always there, and it does have some things in it that are not necessarily available to me on my property uh, in addition to the comfrey. And it just, again, works really great. Again, Dr. Christopher's Complete Tissue and Bone Ointment. Uh, I credit avoiding a surgery on my knee uh, quite a few years ago when I had a serious injury to this product in of itself. It's pretty amazing. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you that uh, I don't know. I'm I'm in the case of the Monday brain. I, I already reminded you of everything. We're ready to, to, to log off. But I think it was uh, being interrupted in the middle of my live stream and my my internet has yet to return, so I will have to uh, use a secondary measures to upload today's show. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out just run you around? They said you should have a house. American way a dollar down a dollar a month and you never have to pay there's a better way to do this let me show you a better way Revolution is